You know, there was a time when you pretty much had to deal with bullies face to face. Now you have to do so virtually as well. You know, if someone is bullying your kids, how do you tell them to respond? Do you tell them to just ignore it, to report it, or to fight back? And if they're being attacked through social media, do you tell them to defriend someone, ban them from Snapchat, or help them post clever responses? And bullying isn't just child's play. If a boss or a coworker says or does things that are inappropriate or distress you, how do you address it? Do you confront them? Report it to HR, or if it isn't physically damaging, just ignore it. How do we prepare our children for bullies? And how do we prepare ourselves for those who would oppress us and take advantage of us in life? And what about others? who are being oppressed or taken advantage of. You know, nothing upsets us more than to see someone who is defenseless being oppressed. You know, we cheer when Snidely Whiplash gets his comeuppance or the A-team goes into action. And there are times when the defenseless obviously need defending. In fact, Scripture makes it clear that we cannot ignore injustice. Now, there is admittedly a lot of confusion today on what constitutes injustice and how it should be addressed and by whom, but I think everyone agrees there are times when we must speak out. And there are times when legal, even military action, is justified. It's not enough to simply say to those in need, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. There are times when we must rise to the defense of others. But should we defend ourselves when we are being oppressed? And if we do, how far should we go? And to continue our thought from last week, if we take things into our own hands, don't we run the risk of playing God? And I think what James has to say in our text for today will help us sort this out. Because he has a word to both the oppressor and the oppressed. We move into the fifth chapter of James' letter. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You've lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not 
resist you. When James opens this passage with, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you, it sounds as if he is condemning everyone who is rich. And there are many warnings in Scripture about the dangers of riches. Jesus even said it would be easier for a camel to go through the literal eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. And most would recognize the fact that having great wealth does tend to make someone believe they're self-sufficient and therefore makes it very difficult for them to reach out to God. But riches in and of themselves condemn no one. And Jesus did make it clear that God could save even a rich man. So James isn't suggesting that everyone who is rich should be weeping and howling because they're going to hell. He's not addressing everyone who is rich, only those who become rich by oppressing others. Those who trample over others to get riches, who fight, scratch, and claw their way to the top of the heap. Those who, with no regard for others, set their sights on the selfish accumulation of goods. They are the ones James is addressing. Those who have done whatever was needed to succeed. And now feel as if they've arrived. If only they knew what the future held for them. If they knew, they would weep and howl. Their selfish accumulation of wealth is actually accumulating nothing for them but judgment. And their ill-gotten gains will be a witness against them on the day of judgment. If only they had eyes to see the true nature of things, it would serve as a warning against building a life around them. Now, perishable goods are just that. They're perishable They rot. If grain and oil is hoarded too long, it becomes worthless. The finest cashmere sweater will be consigned to the rag bag if moths find it. And even the most durable of goods, silver and gold, tarnish and corrode over time. The perishable nature of things is intended to open our eyes to the temporary nature of life and should motivate us to get our priorities right and to lay up treasure in heaven, not on earth. How sad, then, when decay and rust instead becomes pictures of our destruction. And how foolish to store up material witnesses against ourselves, especially in these last days. And make no mistake, we are in the last days. Judgment is coming. And it's closer than ever before. And when the Lord returns, he will examine our treasures and will know how we accumulated them. In fact, he knows now. And if we've cheated anyone or taken advantage of anyone, he's heard their cries. If we've withheld from someone what is due them, Their outcry has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of the heavenly hosts. The one who controls the angel armies knows what's been done, and he won't let anyone get away with it. 
Now, he may suspend judgment for a time in the hopes that the oppressor will repent, but he does not ignore injustice. Now, the biblical record makes it very clear that God has raised up physical deliverers in the past, and there's no reason to assume he won't do so today. Now, deliverers don't get direct marching orders from him like they once did, but he can certainly use individuals and governments to mete out justice and to accomplish his will on earth. And as Lord of Sabaoth, he certainly has at his disposal spiritual forces to address injustice and to bring judgment on those who oppress. And, of course, he may simply bring to a close the life of the oppressor. James paints that picture very vividly. Speaking to the oppressor, he declares, You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. A life of selfish luxury and pleasure only fatten a man's heart like a pig being fattened for slaughter. The end will not be as expected. Unless we think James' word to the oppressor is not relevant to us, I would caution us all to think again. We may not see ourselves as oppressors, but if we cheat others out of what is rightfully theirs, or take advantage of someone's misfortune, or set our heart on accumulating things above all else, James is speaking to us. He concludes his word to the oppressor with these haunting words. You've condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Now this could be a reference to Jesus. He was certainly the righteous man who was condemned because of our sin. And he did not resist dying in our place. But it's most likely a reference to all the righteous men who have died at the hands of an oppressor. Either way, the point he's making is that the righteous man does not fight back when oppressed. He goes on to develop this point with the word to the oppressed. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. But the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. I think James is making it clear that the oppressed are not to take matters 
into their own hands. Exerting ourselves and demanding our rights may get us what we want, but they also unleash forces of war and destruction. Now again, that's not to say the Lord may not send a deliverer or an advocate to take up our defense. But when oppressed, a righteous man does not take matters into his own hands. A righteous man lets God be God and lets him handle personally oppressive situations. And we must never forget that if he doesn't send a deliverer now, he will deliver the oppressed at the second coming. He knows what's going on. He will see that justice is done. Patience, therefore, is the proper response to personal oppression. We must trust that the Lord will handle the situation in his own way, in his own time. And even though we may not understand it, his timing is always right. Besides, he may be trying to accomplish something through the difficulty we're facing. And for us to take matters into our own hands might very well ruin everything. Like a farmer who digs up seed that's about to sprout because he just couldn't wait to see if it was going to come up. James tells us to be patient. To strengthen our hearts because the coming of the Lord is at hand. Christ could return at any moment. And wouldn't we look foolish if we took matters into our own hands just moments before he returned to set things straight? James then tells us something else to avoid when facing difficult times, when facing oppression. He tells us not to complain or blame one another. You know, it's so easy to turn on others when we feel like they've turned on us. And it doesn't take long for us to start blaming others or God for the mess we're in. And since we're so quick to assign guilt to those who have judged us to be at fault, James warns us again not to judge one another. He reminds us that Jesus made it clear that the way we judge others is the way we will be judged. Now again, that doesn't mean we are to never judge the behavior of a brother. Love may very well demand that we confront someone with behavior that violates the expressed will of God. Not our opinion, but the expressed will of God. But to think that we are wise enough to understand all the reasons for the struggles we face and discerning enough to know who to blame is presumptuous at the very least. And worse, it ignores the fact that the judge is standing right at the door. He sees what's going on. And he may simply be waiting for the right moment to open the door and make his judgment known. Or he may be allowing the oppression to take place because he has a reason for it. After all, suffering isn't always bad for us. In fact, 
Suffering is often necessary to develop a Christ-like character. James reminds us that even the prophets of God suffered. And the writer of Hebrews detailed their suffering for us. In what we rightfully call the faith chapter, the 11th chapter, he tells us that the prophets experienced mockings and scourgings, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, tempted and put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. They did it all without receiving in their lifetime what had been promised, trusting that someday they would. And James reminds us that we count them blessed because they endured. He then mentions the one who is universally recognized for enduring adversity. Now, Job lost everything. He lost his wealth, his family, and his health. And his friends made things worse by trying to make sense of all he was going through. He did agonize over the why question, but he never lost faith. And in the end, he was rewarded for his faithfulness. The judge opened the door and made things right. And he did so in Job's lifetime. The account of his struggles concludes with these words. And after Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations, and Job died an old man and full of days. But even if God hadn't blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, with twice the livestock, seven more sons, and three beautiful daughters, he would have blessed him eventually. And like the prophets and Job, we will be blessed if we endure. If not in this lifetime, then in the next. We have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. If not yet in our own personal struggles, we have at least seen it in the historical record. So we know the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. And he will right all wrongs. We have every assurance that justice will be done eventually. If not here, things will be made right when we get to heaven. In the face of adversity and oppression, we need to remind ourselves of that on a regular basis, and we need to teach it to our kids and model for them our confidence in it. Do we really believe God's in control? Are we willing to trust him? To take care of the things that, that distress us? Or do we jump ahead of him and handle them ourselves? You know, we may have to wait for oppression to cease 
and for oppressors to get their due. But it will be worth the wait. In fact, it'll be worth it all when we see Jesus. Amen? Let's remind ourselves of that on a daily basis and remind ourselves of that as we sing it even now. Let's stand.